Let's speak the word. If you have your copy of God's word, I want you to find the book of 2 Timothy chapter 4. The book of 2 Timothy chapter 4. It's a bit awkward and also very exciting to have the privilege to take just the next few moments and do for you what I would like to under the leadership of the Spirit of God. I want to preach to you about preaching. But before I do, I want you to know this is not a sermon just for myself or to celebrate what I'm doing. Preaching is a gift to the whole church. In fact, the greatest need in our day is not for preachers to understand a theology of preaching. It's for you as members of this church, as attenders. Perhaps you're looking for a church. Maybe you're watching online, as was shared a few moments ago, and you're deciding, where will I be fed God's Word? Where will I learn? Where will I grow? Your theology and understanding of the preaching of God's Word matters so greatly to your spiritual growth and the growth of those whom God has called you to lead. Now, in order to put this in context, as I shared a few moments ago, we're beginning a new series called This Is Us. And we decided to do this this fall as we kick the fall off, as we so often do, just to remind ourselves of who we are as a church. Now, we've presented our vision in many ways. You may be very familiar with our vision. We want to be a people in a place of new beginnings and real relationships. And we believe this happens when you and I gather, grow, give, and go. And of course, those are manifested in gathering for worship and gathering for small group in growing in our time with the Lord and then in growing together in discipleship and fellowship, giving of our tithes and offerings and giving of our time and talent in service and then going with the message of the gospel in our daily life and as the Lord affords more opportunities, going on the mission field and participating and sharing the message of Christ with communities we would not normally impact. And so that's what we've done. We've made our vision very practical. And the reason is, is I believe many churches have wonderfully written, beautiful, biblical vision. The disconnect, though, happens when members of the church applaud the vision, but never apply the vision. They don't know what their role is in the vision, which is why ours, as is your pastor, is very practical and very clear forward. I want you to gather, grow, and give, and go, and we robbed those words directly from the New Testament. So over the years, I've preached those sermons to you and described from God's Word a theology of gathering and growing and giving and going. So we decided to take a different approach over the next four weeks in this pause from Jeremiah and a look into this is us. And I'll tell you the inspiration for this sermon series before we get too deep in the theological heavenlies. I love a good casserole. I, I don't know about you, but I do. Several years ago, I cleaned my diet up. Try to be faithful in that. Do the best that I can. And I miss a lot of the casseroles I used to enjoy. And the casserole that means the most to me from my childhood is none other than this incredibly delicious, not-so-healthy dish called tater tot casserole. 
Now, what I've noticed about casseroles is casseroles are a lot like any other subject in our vocabulary. Everybody has different versions of their casserole, and we all know certain people in your family make a particularly good casserole. Tater tot casserole is pretty bulletproof. It has four main ingredients. You're getting a little extra today, right? Uh-huh. Some of you writing this down. I'm going to get a shout-out on Pinterest. My pastor, did he change your life? Well, no, but I got a great casserole recipe from him. It's real simple. Casserole pan, take it out. Spray it down or lather it up with butter, whatever you do. A layer of brown hamburger meat, a layer of cream of mushroom soup, a layer of cheese, and a layer of tater tots. 350 degrees, about 45 minutes later, kabam! And I think you have all your major food groups. Meat and cheese and carbs and meat. I used to eat tater tot casserole with mustard and hot sauce on it. That's how I roll. I like that. Four ingredients. You know the thing about a casserole? You can eat all those ingredients separate if you want to. You could just make you a pan of brown hamburger meat. You can certainly order just one big bucket of tater tots. You can have a bowl of cream of mushroom soup, and you can just walk around chewing on cheese. But when you put them together, when you put them together, there is this juxtaposition of flavors. You can't even spell juxtaposition. There is this melding together, this beautiful combination and coordination of grease and potato and cheese and cream of mushroom. Cafe sales are going to go up during this service. And the good thing about a casserole is that when you put all those ingredients together and you bake it, not only is it good piping hot, it's good on Tuesday. It just keeps getting better. Some of you don't like leftovers, but most of us can eat a leftover casserole because the longer it sets within reason, and the longer the reason is depending on the size of your bank account. In college, mine would set for a long time. I'd still eat it. You could scrape that mold off. And so, <laughs> but the longer it sets, the better it gets. If I were going to describe Church at the Mill as a casserole, if I were going to ask, what is it that makes us us? What are the ingredients from which God has blessed our church? It's certainly not that we are superior to other churches. It's, it's not that we have a monopoly on the gospel. In fact, we root for, support, and help financially churches all over the world. But, but what is us? And I began asking this question about a year ago, working on this series, knowing that it was coming. And I kept coming back to four main ingredients. Here they are. Christ-centered exposition, intentional relationships, small group, discipleship, intentional relationships, spirit-filled worship, and then making the next generation a priority by leading and loving them. Now, before I go any further, I want you to know I could list many other characteristics of our church attributes of our church, even functions of our church. I'm, I'm not in any way suggesting that my list is inerrant or infallible. But take, for example, someone might say, well, what about missions? Hear me out. It is doing these things on a weekly basis that gives us the foundation from which to do everything else we do. 
The reason we have dollars for missions and teams to send and ministry in our community. The reason we can launch a campus off of our campus. The reason we have the opportunity to enjoy venues of concerts and prayer meetings that go for long periods of time is that week in and week out, what makes us us is that we've decided we're going to try to do these under the power of God's grace to the best of our abilities. This is what makes us distinctive. This is us. So beginning today, we're going to take a hard look at every one of those activities. And we're going to be reminded this is us. I believe that any church which will faithfully preach God's word, God will bless. I believe with all my heart that one of the things that has held our church between the ditches over the years of ups and downs, of challenges and great victories, has been the weekly exposition of Scripture. And I want to show you that, not from my own opinion, and not because it's a passion I've given my life to, not because it's a calling on me, but because your Bible teaches this incredible gift for your life and my life, known, of course, as preaching. There are three letters in the New Testament that were written to young pastors, actually two young pastors. One letter was written to a young pastor named Titus, and two letters were written to a young pastor named Timothy. This is why in your New Testament you have First and Second Timothy and the book of Titus. When you study them in theological circles, they are called the pastoral epistles. That just means they're letters written from the Apostle Paul to young men who he had helped place into pastoral ministry. Of course, these are the books you go to when you're in ministry and you get discouraged. And I would say for those of you in leadership, whether you're teaching seventh grade girls or leading an adult small group in, a first, in the few weeks or discipling someone for the very first time in your life, when you begin to stick your neck out and teach and share and encourage, you're going to get discouraged at times. Go to 1 Timothy. Go to 2 Timothy. Go to Titus and let these words nourish your soul. I have found myself to them over and over throughout my ministry and probably the most famous passage on the need for the church to be a place of preaching is found in 2 Timothy chapter 4. Paul has placed Timothy in a difficult situation. He's leading a church that is filled with movement of the Spirit and opposition. It's nothing new for churches to struggle with division and direction. And so Paul writes first and second Timothy to Timothy to tell Timothy what he needs to be about the business of doing. In essence, Paul is saying, Timothy, when the world goes crazy, this is us. And he addresses the subject of preaching. Let me read 2 Timothy chapter 4, just five verses this morning. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, 
rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Last verse, verse 5. And by the way, this is my life verse in ministry. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. When I was in seminary, a young man came who had planted a church, a northeast urban environment, I won't name the city, and he was talking to us about the challenges of church planting among people who were completely unchurched, disconnected from a culture of Christianity. It's a powerful thing. In fact, even today, our church has church planting partnerships with a network of brothers doing some great work in the city of Boston. And we're always investigating new opportunities in new cities. A few weeks ago, I was on the phone with a friend of mine who has become the church planning coordinator for the city of Los Angeles. And we're talking about what the future may hold. And so we understand the need to make sure we're always supporting and helping churches in areas where many, many, many people either choose not to believe, have never been exposed to the gospel, or are post-Christian. They've deconstructed their faith. That's trending right now, to deconstruct your faith. Let me tell you why I can't unsave me. I didn't save me. I can't deconstruct what he has done. I can deconstruct a mental ascent that I may make, but I didn't mentally ascend to the power of the Holy Spirit. I was a sinner in need of a Savior, and he met me and saved me. You can't deconstruct that. And this man got up and shared in our seminary course, I believe the course was pastoral leadership, about all the things that they were doing to engage people. And they talked about things in the community. You know, you set up a block party, you give away something, you do promotions, you make sure you have relevant music that people can enjoy listening to with a Christian message. I was tracking with him. And he talked about how he would do interviews on stage and how they would take life issues and talk about them in people's lives, earning the right to speak the gospel. And I was like, yeah, yeah. And he got through. And after class, we were talking. And I asked him, I said, uh, sir, if you don't mind, I have a question for you. I didn't hear you mention anything in your services about when and how you preach. He said, well, we don't really preach in our church. We, we tend to have conversations with people, and we like to do interviews and do hot topics. Sometimes we'll play funny games. We, we'll let someone share a testimony. And I remember as a young man training for ministry with a lot of respect for people who were already ahead of me in the game, there was a deep check in my spirit when he said, we don't preach. Of course, I was able to go to my mentor and others, and they pointed out, that's not biblical. There's no room for a church to ever say that the proclamation of God's word is not essential and necessary in the weekly gathering of worship. It doesn't mean we can't have a testimony service or a worship-filled concert, but week in and week out, the pattern should be to preach. So Paul answers four questions 
about preaching that you need to know the answer to. And if you're a young person in this room, if you're in your 20s or 30s and the footprint of your life is still being set, if you think there's a chance you could live somewhere else, if you move away one day, I hope and pray you will look for a church home. You need to look for a church that has a high view of preaching. So let me, let Paul answer four questions you and I need to know how to answer. Number one, why do we preach? Let me give you the short answer. Because God said to. Because God said to. Look at verse one. He says, I charge you. Not I suggest to you, not that I hope that you will, I charge you. This word appears all throughout the scriptures. Think about all the charges in the Bible. Moses charged Israel. Moses charged Joshua. Joshua charged Israel. Samuel, he charged Israel. David charged Solomon. Ezra charged Israel. And Jesus Charge the apostles. It's different than making a suggestion. In fact, normally when a charge takes place, and I'm not talking about one on your visa, but when a charge takes place, it's in the presence of people. If you've ever been married, and many of you are married, a pastor stood and charged you to live out your vows. If you've ever enlisted and served courageously in the armed service, There is a moment where you are sworn in and you take an oath to the Constitution of the United States of America. You are charged to do so. If you've ever been installed ceremonially into any group, if you've ever received a white coat in your medical profession, if you've ever achieved anything professionally that comes with it a set of responsibilities, often there is a charge. The day you graduated, whenever day that was, Someone stood up at the graduation commencement and charged you. We know what this is. Well, God, through Paul, charges Timothy. And notice the audience. Look at verse 1. I charge you in the presence of God and Christ Jesus. And why Christ Jesus? Look what he says. Who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing... And his kingdom. Notice the audience is not other preachers, apostles, or church members. That's not why we preach. We don't preach as a church because you like it or you don't like it. We don't preach because the preacher enjoys it or has trained to try to be effective at it. Those may be overflow characteristics, causes. We preach because God said, preach, proclaim. Our God is not silent. He speaks, so we speak. From the first sermon in the Bible, which is Noah preaching repentance as the rain began to fall, all the way to the last book of the Bible where the visions of Christ's return are given to John in the revelation of Jesus, and he is told, proclaim these visions to the world. God is not silent. He preaches and speaks to our lives through the mouthpiece of humans who hold in their hand the authority to speak, not by their own selves, but by the high view of Scripture. We preach because God said 
to preach. Question number two, what, what do we preach? Look at verse two. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. We could camp here for 10 weeks. Preach the word. The word there, of course, is a reference to God's word. It's exactly why I asked you to open God's word every single Sunday. In fact, Paul would say elsewhere to Timothy these words about God's word. All scripture is breathed out by God. This is one of those key verses that we base our understanding of the inerrancy and the infallibility of Scripture. Church of the Mill affirms that the Bible is God's Word. It doesn't contain words of God. It is God's Word. It is true, without error, infallible, and sufficient for all things in our lives in relationship to knowing and loving God, understanding his redemptive plan, and knowing and loving those around us. This is the authority from which we preach. So we preach it accordingly. Notice what Paul says. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable, and here we go, teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness. I love the way that the Word does all those things. The Word, if I might make it simpler to understand, tells us what to do. That teaches us. The Word corrects us when we do what is wrong. That reproves us. And once we are pointed out our wrongdoing, it gives us the redemption to make the corrections, and then it teaches us to do it over and over and over again. I often compare this to how you train an athlete. You tell them what to do. When they do it wrong, you stop them. You show them again how to do it, and then you tell them to do it three times in a row. This is what the Word does in our lives. And why? That the man of God and certainly the supplies to the woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The word complete there is the English word for mature. To be mature. And notice that maturity is not just for your small group leader or your camp counselor, or your pastor, or your favorite Christian artist, or uh, athlete, or author. No, no, no. God's desire is for every believer to be mature in the faith. But there is only one way for maturation, and that is to nourish your soul on the Word of God. Now, you can feed yourself, and you should feed yourself. But also, one of the gifts God has given the church is that he calls out elders, pastors, gives them the gift to teach and explain, not that they would hoard that gift or exploit it in their own lives, but that they would turn and give that gift back to the church so that at least on a weekly basis come the Lord's day, not only have you fed yourself off of the Word of God, your pastor sets before you a table, a delicious scriptural meal for you to nourish your soul on, to give you direction and guidance, and then to live off that nourishment in the week. What happens when you disconnect from church, whether you stop watching online, if you're choosing to worship online due to your own health, or whether you stop attending, you, you don't have to be a theologian, a pastor, or a counselor to know what happens. You dry up spiritually. 
There are always seasons where we're taking care of a sick loved one. There are seasons where we may have to travel for work. There are seasons where we may be serving in our military, and we recognize that. But if you pull away from the fellowship of the saints, you pull away from the preaching of the word, and you begin to dry up on the vine. It's the same reason why all of you who come here weekly have come in empty and left full, and yet I can't read any of your mail. I have no idea all that you may be dealing with or struggling with. I never sat in my office and say, well, what does she need to hear this week? Or what should I say to this group? No, no, no. I have found if we just open the word, explain the word, then a beautiful, rich, supernatural intersection happens. I don't know if you've ever thought about it this way. Think about the power of the word in this way. The Spirit of God inspired men of old to write the Word of God about the Son of God. And the Spirit of God, if you're here in this room or you're watching me online, if you're redeemed, the Spirit of God convicted you of your need for salvation and caused you to recognize your need. And you, by faith, embraced God's grace by believing upon his son and upon your salvation you were baptized in the Holy Spirit the Spirit of God who inspired men of old to write the Word of God also saved you from the wrath of God and gave you access to the Son of God's blood and then the Son of God forgave you and made a way for the Spirit of God to live in you so the Spirit of God that lives in you is the same Spirit that inspired this book to men of old. Now, let me drop me as your pastor in it. The same Spirit of God that saved you saved me, filled me, called me, and gifted me to preach, not by my own power, but by the, His Spirit, the Word of God that the Spirit of God had already inspired. So when the lights come on and the music fades and the man of God with the Spirit of God and the Word of God opens up to the people of God, the people of God indwelt by the Spirit of God, listen to the man of God led by the Spirit of God, holding a word inspired by the Spirit of God for the glory of God the Son, the Son of God, and God the Father builds his church. So we don't do a lot of interviews. I'm not going to pull a stool up and talk to you. The verb is preach. You know what it's translated in the Old English? Herald. Not your brother, Harold. There's always that guy. Harold. Harold's going to surrender to ministry in 10 minutes. H-E-R. Harold. Remember watching those Movies of old, the town crier, the herald, what would he do? Well, no newspaper, no Twitter. He would go to the square and say, hear ye, hear ye. And then he'd say, by decree of the king. That's what this word means. We stop our week. We shut off distractions. We focus and our pastor says, hear ye, hear ye. I've got a word from the king, and it is for you and me. We preach the word. Now, when we think about preaching the word, 
It's all throughout Scripture. Of course, here, Paul says, preach the word. My mentor, who trained me in this, said it this way about pastoral preaching. If God's word is our power plant in preaching, then each individual text of Scripture is a potential outlet for plugging into that power. That means the biblical text must be a priority in the pastoral sermon. Dr. Shaddix, who's preached in this pulpit, goes on to say, the potency of pastoral preaching begins not with the preacher. We are all grateful for that. And the more you get to know me, the more you'll be grateful that your life does not depend on my wisdom. Preacher or the perceived needs of the listeners. It's not about me and it's not about you. But with the Bible passage on which the sermon is founded. And so what happens in this is that the scriptures unfold the story of redemption. One of the beautiful examples is in Nehemiah, the Old Testament. A revival breaks out, and notice what they did. They read from the book, from the law of God. That was their Bible. Clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. Now, this is in Nehemiah. Hundreds of years before Jesus, same pattern. Read the passage, explain the passage, not to impress the people about what you know about the passage, but explain the passage so that the people could understand the sense of the passage and take it with you. The measuring stick of biblical preaching is not how much Bible the preacher knows. It's how much Bible you know after the preacher's done. It's you being able to put handles on God's Word. When I teach preaching, I often tell young men that. What good is a beautiful leather suitcase with a broken handle? No good. Either have it repaired or throw it away. Because though you may be able to pack a week's worth of clothes in it, though it may look trendy and may be durable to survive TSA, if it has no handle or strap, you cannot take it with you. Preaching is putting the handles on God's Word so you can walk out and not just know more about the Bible, but know how to live according to the God who loves you enough to give you the Bible. And, of course, I'm reminded of what Jesus said just before his arrest. You know what Jesus said? He didn't just say it. He prayed it. He prayed these words in John 17, 17. He said, Lord, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So Jesus says, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And the good news about the word is that the word of God is not just an endless list of principles. We preach the person of Christ from all the scriptures. On the Emmaus Road, right after Jesus' resurrection, he appears to some people who had heard about what had taken place, some distant disciples. And as he's talking with them, they're beginning to bring up Jesus of Nazareth, who had been crucified, and the confusion of the disciples. It's in the book of Luke. And in the book of Luke, this is what Jesus does. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, that's Jesus, interpreted them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So to preach the word is to preach from the scriptures the redemptive plan of God that is embodied in his son. This is why we call it Christ 
centered exposition. Don't let that intimidate you. Demand it. Exposition is to explain a passage and to make it about Christ from all the scriptures. We preach the word. One last pastoral application, and I knew this would be the longest point. Do not ever lead your family to a church that does not preach the word. It usually runs on two ends of an unhealthy spectrum. On one end, it's pretty easy to spot the guy who's more in tune with being trendy and cute and fashionable, who wants you to hang your life on his nuggets, whose church spends more time putting out memes of his image and what he says than they do scripture. Those guys are charlatans. They're usually easy to spot. They always have their face on the cover of their books. But the other end of the spectrum that some of you came out of is sinful fundamentalism that does nothing but take the Bible and use it to preach against everyone and everything else. And very soon in the sermon, what you find is a jaded and cynical hatred and vile against people and anything that looks different than what their worldview may hold that is a long way from being biblical. And here's the good news. You have a Bible. You have access to all books, explanations. Demand that whomever you listen to explain the word and do so in context and does so in a way that applies it with the redemptive, gracious treatment of people who would listen to the desire that people would come to faith or believe all the more. Quickly, the other questions. Number three, when do we preach? <laughs> this is a good one. We never stop. Look what happens in verse two. Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. That's exactly what it means. Don't ever move away from preaching the word as a church. Whether you're preaching a word in adversity or applause, whether you find yourself in comfort or conflict, whether people are being receptive or they're rejecting, whether they're celebration or sorrow, just keep preaching. Just keep preaching the word. And how do you preach? This is important. Look at the last phrase of verse 2. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort. We understand those. Sometimes you correct people. Sometimes you gently teach people. Sometimes and all the time, I hope you encourage people. It's never me against you. It's us against the enemy. And God is on our side. Rather, we're on his side. And so even when a pastor has to preach a hard message, he is doing so that people would repent, be redeemed, and believe. But notice the last phrase of verse 2. This is powerful. He says, with complete patience and teaching. Now, that word teaching, you might think of the verb, the act of teaching. That is true. I always say that teaching is not preaching, but good preaching better have teaching in it. Don't just scratch out a spot and pitch a fit every Sunday. Teach your people something. Many of you teach a small group, but you don't have a podium or a pulpit, and you don't preach for 45 minutes while they listen. That's a great way to have a really small, small group. And so what I would encourage you to do is to be teachers of the Word. But in this moment, at this sacred place, the herald is to teach. But this translation actually is a little bit weak. It actually is better translated 
preach with great patience and doctrine. In other words, he's saying, keep giving them the truths that are established in God's word and not the myths that people are going to chase after. Don't move the measuring stick. If God has affirmed it as true, keep it in front of your people, but do so with great patience. Why do you do it with great patience? Because nobody has changed in one sermon. Now, you may say, Pastor, that's not true. I went to an evangelist once and heard him preach, and I got saved at the end. I listened to someone teach God's Word, and it pricked my heart, and I made a decision. That's wonderful. What I would encourage you to remember is that often those moments, those altar moments, they do happen, and they do come, but they usually come from multiple exposures to the Word of God. Nobody brings a brand-new baby home, nurses it once, and says, Good luck. We hope you do well in college. No, you feed that child multiple times a day for 18 years hoping you're not feeding them again at age 25. And so what, what we do is we nourish the soul. Now, I've seen this. I couldn't say this in year one. I probably couldn't say it to the degree that I can in year five. But in January, I will celebrate 18 years here. And what I have watched is I have watched God overcome my lack of wisdom and my mistakes God overcome your struggles and times of immaturity. And God take a wonderful group of people who love the Lord dearly and gave me the privilege of my life to be a pastor and grow it into a church that's roots run deep. There is strength and love and unity. And it is not because of our pastor. It's not because of our music or our facility. It is because for 18 years... The Word of God has been preached. And what happens is, is that this amazing thing happens. We know the Word changes lives, but He does not just change individuals. He transforms entire churches. The Western world struggles with this, but in the first century, people did not first view themselves individually and then their church. We view that way all the time because of our Western mindset. But in the first century, in antiquity, in the Middle East, your community's identity was far more important than your own. And so we find this transformative power of a community. And that's how we are to preach. You know what that does? It protects the preacher from burnout. On any given week, some of you are getting it really wrong. And on any given week, some of you are getting it really right. I've had people that I've come in contact with who've sat under my preaching for years, and I've watched them go from being selfish and immature, conceited, egotistical, lost, to being some of the most kind, servant-hearted, foot-washing, spirit-filled lovers of Jesus I've ever seen. And then I've had some who, some who sat and listened week in and week out, taking notes, affirming, saying amen, and then walk out the door and commit adultery walk out the door and cheat their boss out of money, walk out the door and abandon a promise they made. And in those moments, I'm reminded, how many times have I given the Lord opportunity to give up on me? And yet he has remained kind and patient. He does not change. He's not negotiating. But he is always ready to receive a repentant heart. So the preacher does not judge his effectiveness by the performance of his people. He just keeps preaching, believing over time a church will grow in her maturity and love 
of Jesus. And I think I got 20 more years. And I want to see what he continues to do. I'll close with this. Paul says, why do we preach? Because God told us to. What do we preach? The word. When do we preach? All the time. How do we preach? With great patience and doctrine. But while we preach, remember this. There are going to be some who will not listen to the message we preach. But while we preach, we better live and keep living the message that we preach. That's exactly what's happening in our world today. See if verse 3 sounds like our world. He says, For a time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to truth and wander off into myths. You have friends who've done that. You know people you love that are buying into a version of Christianity that will not define God as the creator. Marriage is between one man and one woman. Life is precious in the womb. Gender as determined by God in the womb. You know people who would tell you they are people of faith and they have found for themselves others who will misuse and misinterpret God's word. And you know what? It's interesting to me. Paul says, he does not say, Timothy, be mad at those people. Timothy, be angry at them. Timothy, don't talk to them anymore. That's not what he says. He says, Timothy, you stay sober-minded. You keep your cool, keep moving forward. You endure suffering, it's going to come. You do the work of an evangelist, and you fulfill your ministry. While this is certainly a verse easily applied to a pastor, the Bible says we should emulate our elders. This should be a verse for you as well. Probably the greatest illustration that I'll close with. I was sitting with a couple who had come into our church. He was raised in church, saved, had strayed from the Lord. She was raised in and around the Catholic tradition, but she admitted she was very nominal and did not understand the gospel. They had begun dating, became pregnant, married, came into our church, realizing we didn't start in the right way, but we want to get this in the correct direction. We applaud that. We love that. And she came to faith in Christ, and I was talking with her about her baptism. Every person you ever see us baptized has been asked the question, explain to me your understanding of the gospel. We just believe people deserve to be asked that question. We don't want people to be confused when they enter the waters of baptism. And so I asked her. I knew she was saved. Her life had been totally transformed. I said, tell me when you got saved. And she gave me an answer my Baptist mind wasn't prepared for. I'm prepared for summer camp with mama at the altar, in my pickup truck, preacher in my deer stand, with my wife, with my husband. I mean, I, anybody tells me a point you got saved, that lines up with my theology. She blew my theology out of the water, taught me something. She said, well, I got saved during your entire First John series. I said, ma'am, do you know how long my series are? <laughs> I never met him by that lost. It took you 18 months to get saved. But actually, what she meant was, as the scriptures of the gospel were unfold, unfolded, she crossed over from believing with her mind to trusting Christ with all of her heart through the explanation 
of Scripture. She is the reason we preach. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, and thank you for the word. Next week, I will leave this subject. It is a bit awkward to preach on the very thing that you do, which is preach. But it edifies your church. Of course, I couldn't begin to close this service without thanking you and these precious people for the honor of being their preacher. You know, Lord, in college when I was solidifying my call, I was overwhelmed with feelings of unworthiness. And it was understanding your grace and your church's need for truth. It was getting to a point where it wasn't about me, but it was about what you wanted to do in people's lives that freed me up to exercise my gift. But I'm not the only person with a gift in this room. In fact, the Bible teaches every Christian has spiritual gifts. Preaching is not about, first and foremost, the person on the platform, the podium, the position, the pastor. Preaching is about a good God who wants to speak to his people through his word. And it's about a people who come with open hearts and open ears, open hands and open minds. And Father, I pray that Church at the Mill would always be a beacon for the preaching of your word and that from this you would call young men out to preach and to pastor. I also pray for every small group leader, every man and woman in this room that has the gift of teaching as the scripture teaches us we are given and to exercise that with authority from your word to speak into people's lives. We need to stop assuming we have to teach. Lord, that's not only true for a preacher or a small group leader. Every father in this room needs to teach his children the things of God. Every mother in this room can craft her little ones with a heart for the things of God. Pour into her daughters the things of God. So, Lord, it would be rather sad to preach on proclamation and not give people an invitation. So with your head bowed and your eyes closed, we're going to stand and sing in just a moment. And when we do, if God has pricked your heart, if you've not been receptive to preaching, if you've dozed off some, if you've not been the person who comes thirsty for the Word of God, maybe you have enjoyed it too much and you've not been feeding yourself Maybe today, somehow through this sermon, Christ has made himself real to you. And like my sister who shared, you have believed upon Jesus. And you're ready to repent of your sin and to turn to him. Whatever your need is, this altar is open. We're going to sing just a couple of lines of a beautiful song about hope. You come as God leads. And for those of you who are in leadership, if the Lord so moves, why don't you come and just pray for the continued preaching of God's Word. That God would protect my life and now Pastor Adam's life as he preaches at our second campus. We covet that. We don't want to bring shame on this church. We want our lives and our language to match. So however you choose to respond, we pray you would do that right now.
Father, you move as only you can in Jesus' name.